The jewels that these national labs are. In terms of science and scientific capabilities. Big dreams can happen. Keeping our nation safe. Clean energy is way of the future. America's economic engine. It's science for the people. This is Direct Current. Hey everyone, welcome to Direct Current. I'm Matt Dozier. And I'm Court Creer. We've been hard at work on new episodes of the podcast, and we've got a fun one for you today. So, Matt, you went to a big conference in D.C. to talk to some scientists recently. Yep, AAAS. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And they have this huge annual meeting where scientists from all over the world get together to share their findings, discuss research techniques, talk about how to communicate science, that sort of thing. Yeah, and there's tons of folks there from the Department of Energy and our 17 national labs. Absolutely. And so I got a chance to sit down with a couple of them to talk about a subject that I find really fascinating. Microbiomes. Microbiomes. Uh, So, like, biomes but super small? Kinda? Kinda. There's this invisible world of microbes that live all around us, on our skin, in our guts, and even in the ground under our feet, and we're only just beginning to understand their function. The researchers I interviewed are especially interested in using genetic data to study the microbiome of soil. Turns out these tiny organisms can help us answer some really big questions. Sounds awesome. After the break, we'll listen in on that full conversation recorded live on stage at AAAS 2019. Stick around. Hello and welcome, everyone. This is Direct Current and Energy.gov podcast. My name is Matt Dozier. We're here at the AAAS annual meeting at the SciMic podcasting stage. I'm with the U.S. Department of Energy, and I'm joined here by two scientists from the Joint Genome Institute. We have Dr. Susanna Tringe and Dr. Jason McDermott from Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I would like to have you first just give us a little introduction, uh, tell us about yourselves and your research. Susanna, I want to start with you. Yeah, sure. I work at a place called the Joint Genome Institute, which is a user facility that does genomics work for the user community. Um, And my own area of expertise is called microbial community genomics, using DNA and RNA sequencing to study whole communities of microbes. And I particularly focus on wetland soils and agricultural soils. Yeah, and I'm from Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, which is in Richland, Washington. A lot of people confuse that with being in Seattle, but we're actually on the east side of the state. I'm a computational biologist. I'm a microbiologist by training, and I've kind of gotten in back into microbiology through um, working on soil microbiome projects uh, more recently. Great. Well, I uh, appreciate you both joining me here today. We are here to talk about microbiomes. And I think just for uh, basic background, uh, could you help me understand what a microbiome is? Yeah, Susanna, sure. So, so microbes are found in all kinds of habitats, ranging from our own bodies in our guts and on our skin to environments like soil or water. And usually there's a whole spectrum of organisms, not just one microbe, but a whole community that works together. And so the microbiome of soil or your gut um, is sort of a community that's thought of as a unit that works together. Um, There is a lot of talk these days, a lot of attention paid to the human microbiome, as Mm -hmm. you said, um, with, you know, gut microbes, that sort of thing. Um, Now, your work specifically is more focused on soil, right? Right. So, So why study the microbiome of soil? Isn't dirt just dirt? 
<laughs> so there's actually a lot of important processes that take place in soil that relate to carbon and nutrient cycles and supporting plant growth or the animals that live there. So we're really interested from the energy perspective in how soil is involved in the production and uptake of greenhouse gases. Right, right. Okay, so Jason, I want to get to your research in, in a bit, but uh, you know, first, like when it comes to the actual collecting samples and figuring out uh, what is in the soil micro microbiome, how do you actually go and collect those samples, Susanna? Yeah, well, in the wetland projects, we, we have a corer, so we can go out and take these cores of soil, usually just maybe a foot or two deep, and then we take that and usually mix it up and freeze it to take it back to the lab where we can then extract DNA for sequencing or RNA. Another thing we do with the cores before we extract the nucleic acids is actually measure their ability to produce and uptake greenhouse gas. We have an instrument that we can actually put the core in and measure its production in real time so that we can really see that that piece of soil is carrying out this activity and then do our molecular assays to see how that matches up. So you're not just using basic like gardening tools, right, to collect these samples? Yeah, yeah. You have specialized corers, and you use lab equipment. To, you know, when you when you want to uh, keep it clean and package it and put it on dry ice, and then get it back to your lab. You want to, you want to keep the dirt clean as as best you can. Especially, you don't want any of your human associated microbes getting mixed in with your soil, and they're all over you. So you do want to prevent that. Right. So it's, so it's actually pretty clean work uh, when it comes <laughs> to collecting and transporting the samples. Yeah. Um, so tell us uh, what you do with these samples once you get them back to the lab. So what is the, what is the goal here, and you know, how do you do that work? Yeah, so the soil samples, in order to extract DNA, there's a series of chemical steps that works amazingly well with a variety of samples that the protocols have been worked out such that you can take it. You usually add some beads to break all the cells up, and you vortex it, which is kind of shake it really hard, and then you know put it through a pure set of purification steps that take all that soil and dirt away, and then take out all the proteins and you know, if you're looking for DNA, get rid of the RNA as well, and finally end up with pure DNA that you can use for sequencing. Gotcha. So, um, and, and Jason, maybe you can jump in here too. Um, so this data that you've collected, once you've sequenced all of the genes in this sample of whatever it is, whether it's soil or something else, um, what, is that, what does that look like, you know, to you in terms of the sheer, you know, quantity <laughs> of data? It's a pretty overwhelming amount of data. Um, if you think about, you know, what you might open up in an Excel spreadsheet or something like that, you can think of that multiplied many, many times over. And it's something that you can't really deal with with the kinds of tools that, the kinds of normal uh, bioinformatic tools that, that exist. And so you have to use, um, in some cases, high-performance computing. So that's like big compute clusters to, to work through some of the data, especially from uh, samples like soil, which are very complex. You end up having just a lot of, a lot of data there. Um, I should also note on, on Susanna's, she said um, they take out the proteins and to discard them. Um, at PNNL, that's one of the things that we focus on is taking those proteins and some other kinds of small molecules and also characterizing those to kind of layer on top of the metagenome kind of information that, that's right. coming out. Um, and I think it's important to define that term, the metagenome. Um, so yeah. there's, there's uh, the genome. Um, so this is, you're talking multiple genomes, right? I, I think people might be familiar with the sort of personal at-home genome tests. So is this anything like that? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the basic technologies for sequencing are similar regardless of the application. And that although many of the technological advancements have been focused on producing cheaper human genomes, the whole rest of the field of genomics has benefited from those changes in technology. Uh, in terms of the metagenome, that is sort of a coined term using that prefix meta in the same way you might talk about a meta-analysis being a combined analysis of many data sets. The metagenome is the combined genome of many different organisms present in a sample. Right. So once you have all that data, you have the, you know, massive, you know, super spreadsheet of all the uh, fragments of genetic data, you know, how do you go about making sense of all of that information? Whoever wants to take that, I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really difficult problem. And one of the problems is that, um, you know, if you look at samples like human samples or something, the, the genes of, of humans are fairly well characterized and we pretty much know what the functions of most of them are. Um, with a metagenome with, from a microbiome, we have lots and lots of, of protein coding sequences. So these are the bits of genetic code that actually do uh, code for things that do work. Um, and we really don't have a good handle. Uh, I mean, some of the estimates are as high as 80%, 70 or 80% of the of the pieces, we just don't know what they do. And a lot of them are not similar to anything else that we've seen. And so it's a difficult process. So the first pass is probably just to, you know, match things up with things that have already been seen. So you can kind of go through and say, oh, this is definitely a certain kind of bacteria that we've, we've seen before. You know what something about what the bacteria does. Um, and then you kind of go down the line of like, okay, here's a bunch of stuff that we, that we know what the function is, but we can't really attribute it to any particular organism. I mean, it comes from a particular bacteria, but we don't know where that comes from. Um, and then there's this, just this whole bunch of dark matter, which is relatively unknown. Like we can look at it with the current tools and we just don't know what it is. And, and you're using dark matter kind of as a euphemism there, right? It is definitely a euphemism. And, and uh, so, what, so what I was using it as is basically just the unknown uh, genetic potential of microbiomes right. in that case. So, uh, Susanna, specifically in soil, uh, we were talking earlier uh, that, that, you know, basically you, we don't fully understand what soil's made up of. Is that, is that generally correct? Yeah, and a lot of the organisms there are organisms that we are not able to cultivate in the lab, and the way we've learned that they are there is through these molecular techniques. You know, we can see the same sequences showing up in our DNA sequencing, or at least the same families, and we can look at particular genes that help us place it on a sort of phylogenetic context, but ultimately they might not be at all closely related to the things that we've grown and sequenced and know what they do. Yeah. So in, in, say, like a typical sample of soil, you know, of all that information that you collect and get, I mean, do you, how much of that can we actually interpret at this point? Something like less than half, you know, that even if you can, depending on what you consider interpret, you know, you'll take your data, you'll clean it up, you will try to assemble it into genomes if you can, which for a single genome would always be the objective to get a good quality you know, assemble genomes so you know not just each individual read, but how they all go together, and then annotate genes, these protein coding sequences on it. Um, and we, it, we can 
for the metagenomes, it's not that hard to say this is probably a protein, you know, because it could code for an amino acid sequence. Often you can say it's a protein, and it's similar to something else that's been sequenced some time. But the fraction that you can actually say it's similar to a protein that someone has tested in the lab and carries out this function is, I think, maybe 40% or something of the of the proteins that you see there. Right. And, and you said that, that you know, a lot of these uh, microbes in the soil, we can't cultivate them in the lab, right? So, so, right? so we then can't really study them thoroughly. Is that basically right? Yeah, exactly. What you'd love to do is test your hypotheses. Say, I think this organism can eat this particular carbon substrate, and what you'd like to do is grow it in the lab and feed it that carbon substrate and see that it takes it up and does something with it. But in actual practice, since you can't even get it by itself, you don't have any way of testing that kind of hypothesis in a in a simple, straightforward way. Right. Okay. So you know, with all of these unknowns, with all of this data, so you know, what are what are some of the challenges and some of the ways that you try and tackle you know sorting through, comparing all this data, and, and figuring out what what it means? Sure. Well, one of the most useful things that comes in is really having a great reference database because, like we said, the first thing you do is compare it to everything else you have and try to say, are there other things that are close enough that I can kind of jump that that gap and say, I think that it carries out this function. And so having as many genomes of just isolated microorganisms as possible really helps us interpret it. But also being able to compare the whole spectrum of genes that you have present in your sample with what people have seen in other samples that are hotter or colder or wetter or drier can really help you sort out, you know, there's these thousands and thousands of genes, you know, which ones might be the important ones in your particular system. So the comparison is really the the most powerful tool we have for these data that we have a hard time interpreting. Right. And and Jason, that's something you're involved in, right? With the, you know, comparative uh, analysis across, you know, these databases and that sort of thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's, um, that's true. I mean, we we're working on ways to extend some of the existing methods for looking at similarities. And so there are, are very good ways of identifying similar sequences. So this is the gene sequences or the protein sequences to, to tell you what, you know, what this unknown protein is, is similar to. But like I said, there's still a lot of, of territory. And there are a number of cases where um, we know that the proteins have the same function, but we know that their sequences are very different. And so how do you kind of try to take that existing, those existing methods and extend them so we can get, you know, more insight into what, what's actually going on? Right. With, with so many unknowns, does it ever feel, you know, frustrating or, or overwhelming to just look at all this data and say, you know, what is it, what does it all mean? (laughs) I think it's really exciting, actually. Um, I mean, yes, there's there's an element of frustration in that you'd like to push further, and sometimes you have things that you're like, oh, I really want to know, you know, more about this system. Um, but it's really interesting to think about the potential of this data and and the things that we don't know. Um, we're working on on um, at PNNL on a project where we're trying to characterize um, some of the viral sequences that are in this, and so viruses actually infect bacteria. And um, there's a whole class of viruses that infect bacteria, and we can identify those from those metagenomes, from the microbiomes, but we really have, like, zero idea of, very little idea of what's, what's going on with those, why those viruses are there, and, and what they're doing in terms of the dynamics of the microbial communities. So that's even beyond the microbiome, that's the, the virome, right? The virome, yeah. 
So uh, you touched on things we can do with this and, and exciting opportunities. So, um, Susanna, tell me a little bit about kind of what you're trying to learn from this research. You know, what are some of the big things that you're able to, to study and kind of you know, shine more light on? Yeah, I, there's a lot of different things we're trying to re learn, but one of the main motivations behind my wetlands work is really not just better understanding the carbon cycle, but identifying better ways that we can help shift the greenhouse gas balance in the atmosphere. And so wetlands in particular are known to be very effective carbon sinks in that they have vegetation that takes up a lot of carbon dioxide and converts it into plant matter, but they can also be greenhouse gas sources. They produce methane at times or just CO2 from breaking down the plant matter, and that's a totally microbial process. And so there's potential for it to be a carbon source or sink. And when that is the case is not that well understood. There's sort of general trends, but any given wetland, it's hard to know, you know, where it's going to fall on this spectrum. And there's a lot of wetland restoration going on now, usually aimed at improving habitat or water quality or flood control, not usually towards carbon sequestration. But I think all of that, those wetland restoration projects have the potential to be carbon sinks, but only if we really know how we can make them carbon sinks and not carbon sources. And so we're trying to look at the microbes and say, you know, this sample produced a lot of methane. This one's not producing much at all. What are the biogeochemical and genetic factors that we can correlate with that, um, with that pathway? And then can we step back to what was the environment that made that conducive to that particular balance. Right. And, and so for your wetlands work, I think some folks might be, you know, familiar with the sort of general area if mm -hmm. they know the Bay Area as yeah, well at yeah. all. So tell us a little bit about kind of where you've been doing that research. Yeah. And so we're located in the Bay Area. So it was a perfect place to, to study wetlands in this Bay Delta region. And our initial studies were up in the Sacramento San Joaquin Delta, where there used to be a whole range of wetlands, but almost all of it has been converted to other uses, mostly farmland, because they have very rich organic soils that make great farming land. But unfortunately, that wasn't a very sustainable process because that organic soil tends to break down once you've drained it. It you know, is metabolized into, into carbon dioxide. It gets uh, compacted by the farming equipment. So if you go out to these islands, it's very striking that they're very far below the surrounding water and prone to to flooding because if the levees breach, they become flooded. So the wetlands we started studying there were partly to try to build back that subsided land. And then we've also been, in terms of studying this whole question of carbon cycling, we've been sampling wetlands throughout the Sacramento uh, Delta and the San Francisco Bay region. And most recently, the, the salt ponds in the San Francisco Bay, uh, with m many of which are, are slated for restoration, and so right. we gave us an ideal opportunity to compare unrestored and restored. And I think I've wetlands. seen those from the uh, from the airplane. Yeah, they're the very SFO. striking. They're very bright red because they have these halophilic microorganisms oh, yeah. that produce red pigments. Um, so, kind of moving on from that, um, you know, what is for each of you the most exciting thing about your research that you're working on right now? I think for me, it's really the potential to have an impact on our understanding of the environment and our stewardship of the environment, being able to improve the way we, we manage our ecosystems, and but also just this incredible power for discovery that you sequence almost anything out in the environment, and there's still a whole bunch of it that's not understood, and that can be frustrating, but you also think, imagine if we really did know what all of this was, that we'd 
you know, there are probably some amazing discoveries just lying in wait if you can figure out how to interpret the data. Right. Yeah, and I'd like, I mean, that's really exciting for me as well as I, as I expressed. Um, I think one of the key parts of that that we're really interested in, and I know JGI is interested in as well, is, is kind of the open science idea, which is trying to make as much of this data available and usable by the scientific community because we have specific questions that we're asking about it, but if we can put it out there and have other researchers come and ask different questions, they're going to get, you know, really interesting discoveries that we never even thought of. And so, you know, part of that is moving moving that data um, forward and, and putting it out so that we can, you know, enhance the biological discovery. I'm really excited about uh, how we take different kinds of data, so the metagenome data, but also, as I mentioned, we have protein measurements that are kind of similar um, and small molecule measurements and how we knit those back together into a, a to a picture of, of an entire microbial community. And you can kind of think of it like this is a very interdisciplinary kind of approach, um, you know, like your, your uh, modern medicine where you go in and you see a doctor, but you're not just seeing that general practitioner. You're seeing an x-ray technician. You're seeing a nurse phlebotomist. You're seeing, you know, a bunch of different people with a bunch of different expertise. And how do you take each of